We played uh, we played monikers last night. We had some very inspired moments of uh, of pantomime. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Sherman killed it. Andy killed it. I I did shit eating grin that like uh, like haunted Marsh. My shit eating <laughs> yeah. grin charade. He just he saw the card. He immediately rubbed his asshole and then smeared it across his face <laughs> and smiled like the Joker. And this all happened within like two and a half seconds. You know. <laughs> Marsh was like shit eating grin. <laughs> oh yeah, that's yeah. good. Very it was good. inspired. I mean, it was I, legendary. You know, the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very... Very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always, are... Andrew Stasulis. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week, and the other two hosts program movies in response to that theme. And we come on here, and we have it out. And that's what we're going to do today. It's episode 80. Wow. Yeah. And it was my topic this week. But before we get to that, You've got mail. Uh, I think we should take a little peek inside Marsh's mailbag. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We've got a letter here from fan and friend of the pod, Alex, who writes, Howdy, gents. Caught up with the Wishman films, which means I caught up with the Date with Doris app. Deadly Weapons immediately had me going, oh, hello voice, that's too much tit. So I was relieved to hear I was not alone in that sentiment. Double Agent 73 is far superior with a more engaged Morgan who has a bit of Patricia Arquette to her screen presence. Also, enjoyed how the unfamiliarity with the prompt forced somewhat blind picks. That was fun. Alex. Oh, thank you, Alex. Yeah, I I was going in 100% blind. I'd say 99% blind in that one because I'd seen flashes of chesty, no pun intended, over the years. But for, yeah, for Dear Doris, that was my first experience with her work. And yeah, something to think about going forward, you know? Yeah, I walked out blinded by chesty. <laughs> Didn't we all? Anyway, it is, like I said, episode 80, let it snow. I asked my buddies here to program movies uh, involving snow of, of whatever kind. And uh, they, of course, delivered. Uh, and they delivered, uh, in particular, a sort of Finnish double feature. Uh, yeah. So I think uh, we'll just uh, we'll bring the films out and... Uh, Tell me about the snow you all brought. Ryan, you had the earlier film of the two. What did you bring? When you first said, let it snow, I suddenly had just option paralysis, of course. There's so many movies with snow. 
snow is used in a variety of really fun ways. However, I decided after more reflection that there were two angles I wanted to make sure I focused on when narrowing down my options. One of which was I wanted to find something that was a little bit spooky, kind of going against the, the season a little bit, you know, entering into Christmas time where things feel very warm and cozy. I wanted to make sure that my snow movie was treading in a little more horror territory. We've been riffing on The Last Winter a bit lately, and I was thinking about that movie, and I, was, I wanted something, you know, a bit chilly. Uh, and then on top of that, I knew I wanted to focus on Scandinavia, and I got particularly lucky when I was doing some research to find that uh, there's a film set and shot in the land of Santa Claus. <laughs> so I thought, this is perfect. Two birds with one stone. We've got a little bit of Christmas time and we got a little bit of horror here. So the film that I picked is The White Reindeer from 1952, directed by Eric Blumberg. Honestly, you could tell the entire story of this film probably in the same amount of time as you would if you were sitting around a campfire. It's a very simple tale following a woman named Perita, who is played by Miryami Kosmanen, who is actually the wife of the filmmaker and co-wrote the script of this film. She is uh, living in a village in northern Finland in the Sapmi region, more famously known as Lapland, where Santa Claus comes from. And uh, her husband, Aslak, is, like many Sami people, a reindeer herder. So he's often away from home. And this is, you know, causing a great deal of strain for her because she finds herself sitting in this desolate, snowy, but rather gorgeous landscape, you know, in their little cabin, it kind of with nothing to do but look out the window all day. That's sort of what's suggested in the, in the first chunk of the film. And, and she feels as though there's a lack of desire in her life. She wants to have her husband around more often. She becomes envious of the fact that he's going on extremely long reindeer herding expeditions. So she decides to visit someone who's sort of on the outskirts of town, a shaman named Saklu Nila who, after proceeding with a ceremony of sorts, starts to discover that there's something mystical about our lead, Perita, that perhaps she may be a witch. He does provide her with a prophecy that if she wants to have men desire her in this life, she needs to make a sacrifice at the stone god farther on the outskirts of town. I'm not going to detail too much about the sacrifice, what's involved. We'll, we'll chew over that later. But essentially what follows in this film is this interesting mixture of the werewolf film and a vampire film where she sort of turns into a white reindeer and becomes this mystical creature that is attracting all of these men and leading them to an, an untimely demise. It's a gorgeous film. It's a, it's a small film, all things considered. It's about 68 minutes. And it really, to me, the act of watching it did feel like you were hearing a folktale told over the campfire. You know, it has this beautiful simplicity to it. There's very, very little dialogue. Honestly, at times, it felt more like a silent film than something from the 50s, both in the way it was shot and in the expressive way that it was performed. Uh, and let me tell you, Lots of snow. Snow all over the place in this movie. It really doesn't snow in it, though. So I will I will concede that. You know, Andy, your film has more 
legitimate snowfall in it than, than mine does. But It's called the budget. Yeah, it's, it's certainly. And just the practicality of you probably don't want to shoot in northern Finland uh, in the winter. <laughs> you know, pretty challenging. But yeah, it's it's a really stunning film. It's It's got an extremely striking look to it. I also think that just the fact that it was a husband and wife collaboration on the script and the character itself gives it this like really interesting edge that I think uh, separates it from a lot of other horror films I've seen, at least from you know the early 50s of this era. It has like a very interesting, somewhat feminist angle about the idea of, you know, a woman wishing for desire, but instead we've got men who are hunting after her and wanting to like ravage the the deer itself. So I had a great time. I thought it was a lot of fun and uh, excited to talk about it. Thank you very much. Andy, why don't you tell us about, uh, I suppose, the various kinds of snow that you brought to the table? Mm. Well, I uh, came to my decision pretty quickly. Um, I, I think in my head... I knew I wanted to go for a uh, uh, a Hollywood holiday action film. It's one of my various pleasures I find with post-classical Hollywood cinema of a particular time period. I'm a big fan of the the Christmas bloodbath, the Christmas action <laughs> movie. You know, before it was fashionable to do so, I was someone who thought that Die Hard was, a, was an amazing Christmas film. And in recent years, though, I, I've, I've sort of grown a little bit out of that. I feel like that's the broke take. Uh, Christmas, oh, yeah. Die Hard's a Christmas, you know, that's a broke take. The new woke take is Lethal Weapon is a Christmas movie. And I have now become a great champion of that film, which is written by Shane Black, the writer of the film that I selected for this week. Shane Black is uh, <laughs> someone that should need no introduction, I think, for a lot of our listeners. But if there's one sort of constant throughout most of his career, it's setting his films around Christmas, wherever that film is taking place, whether it's in L.A. or wherever. Um, Shane Black is someone who has often played with that time of the year as a backdrop for his his action films. And in the mid-90s, he had uh, written a spec script for this film, which set a record at the time for being auctioned and receiving the highest purchase fee in Hollywood history for a spec script. I don't know if either of you guys knew that about this film. It was sold... Uh, to New Line Cinema for a record at the time of around $4 million for the spec script. And New Line had basically pitched it to Shane Black as saying, we've got the director and the star lined up. Another sort of tie-in to Ryan's pick, <laughs> a husband and wife team. That team being... Rennie Harlan, the Finnish renegade, uh, and <laughs> Gina Davis. And the film that these three got together and, and made is 1996, The Long Kiss Goodnight. 
Now, this is a film uh, that uh, uh, sort of has a lot of issues, but, but one that I have always enjoyed uh, a lot. The film is about a woman, uh, played, of course, by Gina Davis. Uh, and as the film opens, we're introduced to her, and she tells us in a, in a voiceover narration that will be abandoned after this initial introduction <laughs> entirely, that her name is Samantha Kane. Uh, at least that's what she thinks it is, because she's suffering from amnesia. And she can only remember the last eight years of her life when the film opens up. She has no knowledge of her life prior to sort of waking up on a beach, pregnant. Uh, and she now informs us that she's settled into a very enjoyable life. Uh, in, uh, I guess, you know, Pennsylvania, I think they're in yeah. at the time. They're in Scranton, I think, some Pennsylvania town. And she's a, a school teacher. She's engaged to be married to the nicest, most boring guy in town. Uh, she has a loving daughter of, of now eight years. Uh, everything is good, but she still has this lingering issue. She's got to know who she is. So she's also she tells us, been hiring private investigators to try to dig up her past to discover what's going on. And through a sort of accidental, coincidental circumstance, her current low-rent private investigator, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who plays Mitch Hennessy, a scumbag private eye, another thing that Shane Black loves, uh, has gotten a hit. They're on the trail. And this, of course, leads to the ultimate discovery that prior to this uh, amnesia, she was a CIA assassin named Charlie. Uh, and the film from there on, you know, becomes pretty much what you expect. A loud, maximalist, post-classical Hollywood action extravaganza uh, set at Christmas. Uh, yes, it was filmed in Canada, uh, even though it more or less takes place in like Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, the, the Northeast United States. But uh, filming in winter in Canada gives us a very snowy and cold film. And in fact, Rennie Harlan said that was very important to him as a Finn. Yeah. Believing winter, knowing winter, <laughs> understanding it. And he said in an interview, I had to see their breath. He, of course, also pointed out that while everyone was freezing their ass off, he was fine. He thought it was all right. You know, he was used to it. But yeah, it's, um, it's a weird movie. It's got some really sort of very kind of cursed elements to it when you consider what happened after this film was released. It was a sort of box office and critical disappointment. Uh, it was basically the last strike for Rennie Harlan. Uh, we're going to get into some more of the, these elements that I, I find very interesting in it. But all that being said, I do think it is uh, a very dumb uh, and at times, very fun movie, mostly buoyed by the um, sort of banter between Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson and a few other interesting character actors that we might get to as well in our discussion today. So 
knowing in my mind kind of where Ryan, I assumed, was going to go, I wanted to to make sure we had a very sort of uh, typical gauntlet, um, you know, broad spectrum for our <laughs> double feature this week. So that is the long kiss. Good night. Thank you very much, Andy. Um, yeah, there was certainly, uh, uh, in terms of snow, I'll just get it out of the way, uh, absolutely delivered. And I think, like you said, Andy, uh, really good on, on Rennie to, to make it authentic because there is really nothing I hate more than uh, the, you know, obviously fake Hollywood snow, mm -hmm. uh, which is why one of my least favorite films of all time uh, is Peter Hyams' Running Scared, a Chicago film where they just sprayed foam everywhere. Yeah. It is absolute dog shit. You should have thrown that movie out just based on the snow alone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to say nothing of a lot of the well, other yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, fake Chicago film. So, uh, I have course had seen long kiss goodnight uh, many many times as a cable classic in the late 90s early 2000s feel like it was just on tv for most of my life and on the other hand of course i had i had not seen the white reindeer <laughs> and so when you when you guys sent in the pics i was thinking like nice this will be cursed you know this will be cursed and i'm here to say it's actually Blessed. Yeah, I would recommend if you're going to watch The Long Kiss Goodnight that you pop on, you know, The White Reindeer in advance to kind of prime you for it or even just use it as a chaser afterwards 100%. because these films belong next to each other. Yeah, they really do. And it really got me on this like finish, uh, finish double feature, finish auteur angle where I'm thinking like I watched White Reindeer first. So that really primed me where I'm thinking like, all right, like. When I see the reindeer pop up in Long Kiss Goodnight, I'm like, this is this is also a Finnish fairy tale. It's also a Hollywood fairy tale. And I think that's, you know, the key distinction between the two. One is, yes, Hollywood bullshit. And the other is, you know, Finnish bullshit, right? And they're both like... One's folklore, <laughs> one's fake lore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. That's exactly, exactly what I mean. But uh, at the core of both of these films are a woman's transformation. Right. And there are so many things in common between these films uh, relating to that and relating to the characters like challenging uh, the, the patriarchal structures of society. While, killing lots of men. <laughs> yeah, killing lots of dudes in both films. Uh, but also, I think both films do have, yes, their their patriarchal conservative elements to them and you see the fight for all of this like happen on screen in both films uh not to mention just like these women looking into the mirror and like literally their their bodies and, and whole uh lives are changing uh as the films unfold yeah yeah and just the fun idea that both of them have something that's buried within them that becomes yes. unlocked, that they don't realize they have. Because apart from the fact, the obvious in The Long Kiss Goodnight, there's amnesia. She has an entire other persona that has existed up until this point in her life that she does not remember. But what's interesting about The White Reindeer is that the film opens with like a spoken word chant poem song type thing, this very lyrical introduction that introduces the fact 
that she was born in a snowdrift, doesn't know she was born a witch, and has evil in her belly. So even though she does like visit a shaman later in the film, the film is implying that the witchcraft was there all along. But then again, both films, if you want to read both as like witchcraft, whether that's something that's granted to you from a shaman or something that you were trained to do, you know, from the government uh, or at least like your, you know, your assassin team, it's something that can be used to destroy all the men that are giving you a lot of grief. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, and I think too, right? Like as sort of fairy tales, they both start out in this kind of like bliss of domestic life, uh, where mm-hmm. we see in in the White Reindeer this wonderful uh, sort of like reindeer sledding race oh that's going God. on in the town, and and already, you know, for me, like I found the film to be to be very striking, and I'll repeat what a lot of people who've seen this film have said it's like there's part of it that almost feels like ethnographic or like flaherty and and silent film-esque documentary you know despite it being 1952 and and that's like these moments where you're just like watching a bunch of people be pulled by reindeers in sleds uh and again i'm not going to take it as like this is real this is documentary but like it has that feeling you know uh so then to have the horror sort of like transplanted on top of it uh Uh, is a very unique flavor I can't say I've experienced, you know, too often, right? There's so much, like, authenticity to to everything that we experience in The White Reindeer. I think because of what you've described, the way it's constructed, it, it feels very... Yeah, like it, it it feels like a neorealist film for most of it. And I think that's why when it eventually does shift into its more supernatural elements, like the horrors is that much more um, unsettling because it seems to be coming from a place of of authenticity with with very sort of naturalistic, experiences that we're having and like yes i mean the 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 opening reindeer race of some sort i guess it it is (laughs) i think it's a race i mean it's like those are the actors on those sleds we see them you know it isn't just like stock footage of some professional reindeer race i mean it's like we have our main characters like sledding down hills and falling over and 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 navigating turns and and it's it's quite impressive i mean it's 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 really stunning to to witness and and to establish yourself and and what's i guess funny in the contrast in two films that do have a lot of thematic similarities and and some subject that i think crosses over itself it's like the long kiss goodnight is like one of the most like inauthentic experiences you can ever have you know starting off uh from just such a maximal hollywood um 
perspective, you know, with the, the, the Christmas pop song playing, uh, a huge parade voiceover. Kid Galahad himself singing the pop song at the beginning, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. An, an Elvis song at that. Right. I mean, it's just like all this big stuff and a very recognizable star in our face. Yeah. I mean, like uh, the white reindeer is, is I think incredible in the way that it, it sort of immerses you in that land. You feel uh, cold from oh, yeah. the get-go. You know? I mean, <laughs> but, it's amazing. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, my heart was warmed by that reindeer race. That looks about just as much fun as a person <laughs> simply could ever have, you know, as opposed to the very commercial Christmas parade at the beginning of the long kiss goodnight. And I was like, get me out of there. I don't want to be like milling about in those hordes of people, you know, listening to, to that crap. But, you know, it, it, it was funny. I was thinking like, yeah, this begins with two seasonal celebrations, right? You know, not that it's necessarily winter. It's hard to tell, of course, uh, when you're up there in, in the white reindeer, but that's how it felt. It felt like this big community celebration, you know, getting on the reindeer sleds. And I wasn't able to find out a ton about Eric Blumberg. There's like not a lot written about this guy, but part of the reason of that is because he'd made very, very few feature films and primarily was someone who worked as a documentarian. His career after The White Reindeer was almost exclusively making television documentaries. And leading up to this, he had made a lot of short documentaries in the region that The White Reindeer is set. So it was something he had been practicing leading up to then. And I'm imagining that his wife, Miryami, the lead actress, was probably the one who was, you know, pretty interested in the idea of like adding genre into their collaboration and their work together because she was a pretty established actor for her time too in in Finland she was like recognizable to Finnish audiences going to see you know their national cinema so yeah that's certainly where the documentary flavor comes from he had made like a whole career out of that Rennie Harlan quite the opposite yeah (laughs) (laughs) although Rennie Harlan did have uh, experience shooting in in winter and at Christmas time, yes, uh, to, and at Christmas time as well with Die Hard Two, right. which was also an action movie he made set on Christmas Eve in a very snowy Washington D.C. airport. But you know, it's it's interesting to even again like talk about this husband and wife pairing because mm-hmm. you know for Gina Davis as well, this was like the high watermark of her career. You know, not necessarily critically speaking, but commercially, like Rennie Harlan uh, and her, who'd only been married for for a short while uh, prior to their sort of, you know, their 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 work together. Like it was his dream to to make her a big action star and make her one of the biggest like bankable box office action star draws. And just prior to this project, like the shooting of it, they had just completed Cutthroat Island, mm-hmm. uh, which was like the first <laughs> attempt. Uh, they bankrupt Karolko. Yes, Rennie Harlan destroyed Karolko with that film, which has, you know, one of the biggest box office bombs in history. I think it was like they lost like $140 million dollars or something on that thing but they were in post-production when they began production on this so cutthroat island hadn't yet been released Uh. while they were working on this it was part of the deal 
with the script in bidding and and getting Shane Black and his you know agent or whoever to to go with with New Line because the plan was like they pitched it. It's like this is an immediate go. Like Rennie Harlan's like I will be in post on Cutthroat Island. <laughs> no and big we will deal. Begin production, yeah. <laughs> reproduction. Yeah, on, on this one. So so you know it's like Gina Davis. Like a a huge, a hugely recognizable figure. And and they set in on this with plans and very big plans for this to be like uh, an epic moment and even potentially a franchise that they were going to like build off of. Instead, Rennie knocked up his secretary and they got divorced, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, yeah, we're, we're certainly getting ahead of ourselves here. But, but yeah, you know, uh, for those who don't know, so Rennie Harlan and Gina Davis, they were married and, and Gina Davis filed for divorce the day after Rennie Harlan gave birth to her personal assistance baby. And if you follow the timeline, Rennie Harlan gave birth. Rennie Harlan's yes. personal assistant. <laughs> sorry, yeah. I know. The personal assistant gave birth to Rennie Harlan's baby, Gina's, Gina's uh, personal assistant. But if you follow the timeline backwards, the inception of that child was like basically one month after the release of this film, which you got to believe then that relationship was going on while yes. they were making this film. Oh, yeah. You know? So Rennie Harlan, like, killed Karolko, killed <laughs> Gina Davis's career, you know? Uh, Shane Black got dragged into the mud with both of them. I mean, man, just, just bodies everywhere yeah. with this film, inside and out, yeah. It's funny, I had never heard of Cutthroat Island before. Um, oh, and wow. I, I know, it's, it's just, just like strange. I don't know, it never, it's never on my radar. But I learned of it when reading Rosenbaum's capsule of The Long Kiss Goodnight. And I think he characterizes Cutthroat Island in like a really funny way. Because his, his capsule mentions that Gina Davis and her husband, Rennie Harlan, crawled out from under the rubble of Cutthroat Island, one of the costliest flops in Hollywood history, to make an even nastier action thriller. Um, and I love that he later mentions, if he says, frankly, if I had to see either Harlan Davis movie again, I'd opt for the klutzy unpleasantness of Cutthroat Island over the efficient, if equally stupid, unpleasantness of this 1996 <laughs> release. Though, if you haven't lived until you've heard Gina Davis say, suck my dick, New Line probably <laughs> deserves your money. <laughs> oh, man. Just, that's like peak era Rosenbaum, you know, in the 90s, just firing Real on all on cylinders. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess that guy's firing on all cylinders all the time, but that's one of those really nice, mean-spirited ones <laughs> i mean he calls the long kiss good night uh efficient and i i was really struck uh by how efficient it is at, at least uh in that it, it it keeps moving at a good clip no matter like how ridiculous it gets and i do think that harlan is like an interesting counterpoint to 
Shane Black because I feel like Shane Black's way more like cynical and nihilistic and Harlan's more of like a, a dreamer and a bozo yeah. you know and I feel like the like how Harlan invests in Gina Davis skating and shooting us like a sniper rifle at the same time it's like the dumbest sequence of all time but so dumb that it like was actually beautiful to me oh yeah uh, this time around yeah know? I mean again another another like link between both of these films helmed yes. by by fins is the the recognition of you know like the, the the grand tradition of the biathlon right of, of yes of skiing or skating and you know precision shooting and and both of them showcase these skills <laughs> and quite knife well. throwing as well in both films oh yeah That's yeah true. definitely and white you know white reindeer is also rather efficient when you think about it i mean honestly i wish Almost it was too efficient yeah i wish it was less efficient i wish i could that movie could add at least 30 more minutes to it it's so lean especially when she's like making these decisions to seek consultation with the shaman, you know, because it really happens rather rapidly that she uh, is getting tired of the fact that her husband is away all of the time. There's this moment where no words are shared, but she's sleeping in the hut, like this communal hut with everyone. And she's like feeling the, the absence of her husband, even when he's there. It gets along very, very quickly to her, like addressing the shaman. I, I, I appreciate it to an extent because, again, I think the, the best way to read this film is like a fairy tale, a folk tale, something someone is sharing to you, telling you the highlights, and then it's filled in with all this imagery. But I do think, you know, the efficiency here, I think this thing could have been a bit, a bit meatier. I would have liked to have spent a bit more time in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. But I think, yeah, I did have that experience, though, of doing what you were saying, which was sort of like filling in a lot of those spaces. And there's so many uh, almost like interludes between the scenes of just the landscape uh, that are breathtaking in their cinematography, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the, the sun setting over a snow drift or, or an entirely, like, black landscape at night uh, broken only by the illumination of, like, uh, a fire inside of a tent. Mm -hmm. I mean, some really just, just some very powerful imagery that, that uh, I think, again, like, establishes tone and place and and space so well that you know again it, it it it's like the supernatural and the natural are so like gracefully um laid on top of one another that that it becomes like seamless you don't suddenly feel like Oh, what? Suddenly it's a it's a ghost story or suddenly it's a it's a it's a spooky movie? Like no, it, everything is sort of like emerging from these moments of either like longing, loneliness or or like desolation that it it sort of um I mean it really does just kind of creep up on you. You you don't expect it. And when it's there, it is integrated well into um, feelings you already have about these people and and this crazy fucking area on Earth that people live and exist. Mm -hmm. I think 
There was also an interesting byproduct of showing the desolation of the landscape that contributed well to this like underlying theme of the front half that everyone was like <laughs> really horny <laughs> and like looking for connection, you know, for other people. Like when when um, Perita does marry her husband, following what I thought was like an extremely funny sort of courting maneuver where he shows up at her home and is just like circling it repeatedly like while riding one of those reindeer sleds you know and the father inside is like these hunters are not after bear i don't think <laughs> you know and when they do get married it's so funny because everyone in town can't shake the giggles from the idea of the two of them like fucking immediately after they leave and they're sitting Perita and Ozlock are sitting behind this this curtain and the, the people in the town keep peeking in they're looking at their fur boots that are visible from below the curtain but just watching them like shove everybody back outside to that desolate landscape I like couldn't help but think about how starved they all were for just like pornography like they just were so they were just itching to like catch like one last little glimpse of maybe some some intimacy which I thought was wild but it was just something I was thinking about it's like man yeah you really only just got each other yeah and 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 i think right away there's one of like the the big differences between the material and and certainly like the cultures because in this uh and in this again like very cold very seemingly like unforgiving place of of endless winter we we see in that kind of folklore and in this and in this um you know this region this culture that you know, the only way that you can exist in these places, the only way you can exist in a climate like this is with a, like a deep sense of community of people literally and figuratively, but definitely literally like huddling together for warmth. And so, you know, as cold as it is a, a, around everyone, you don't get the sense that people are like, man, this sucks be because they have each other and they live in, even if they have various homesteads, there's so many moments of people just, just being together of sharing uh, resources, sharing bartering in like the first 20 minutes, you see like several times people are just exchanging things. Yeah. And, and even at the wedding, you know, when, when basically like everyone in this area comes together to, to donate to them, mm -hmm. you know, starting their life. And, and it's, it's, it's rich and it's joyous. And even in small moments, whether like just, you know, camping out somewhere, I mean, they're all, you know, whether or not they're strangers, they are sleeping on top of one another, basically, because that's what you have to do. So to me, this is a movie that, that really like showcases that this, this grand sense of, of, you know, the only way to survive in a harsh world is for us all to come together, to work together, to live together, to to make sure that we all survive. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, and, and again, going back to the cynicism of, of Hollywood, well, Shane Black, like, was once, like, interviewed about this. Like, why is every movie you make set at Christmas time? You know, like, I think, like, six or seven of the movies he wrote are all set at 
you know, with Christmas being like in the background, even Iron Man three, which he directed and for the fucking MCU was set during Christmas time. Uh, and he was like, well, well, you know, for me, it's this kind of like, it's this, it's this special time in our lives, this kinds of, this kind of transitionary thing. <laughs> but, but aside from like his, whatever, like bullshit, if you look at a lot of his movies, you know, I think he's selecting Christmas because, uh, he wants to sort of contrast that kind of like hallmark, yeah, you know, with the nastiness and with loneliness, with characters who are from broken families and broken homes, and and who see all of this, you know, revelry around them, the celebrations, the gift giving, the togetherness of, you know, how Christmas is certainly marketed, and give us some scumbags who are basically like drinking alone in a bar on Christmas Eve, and and I think you know that is a big departure, <laughs> you know, like that is a representation of these again two cultures this like this la screenwriting piece of trash who uh you know is sort of just like using christmas to really like revel in misery more than anything else yeah he just seems like he has got to be just like the biggest dumb guy uh, of all time (laughs) shane black i like i've always just like thought that about this dude and i feel like he probably does like deep down believe like it's just sort of ingrained in second nature in his brain that he just like believes in the commercialism of Christmas. Like that's something that like he buys into and enjoys being this like LA screenwriter dude. And that he's just being zany by like adding in, you know, again, those flourishes, these like nasty pain loving, uh, action flourishes into that setting you know because he's like oh isn't this like this is creative i'm i'm zigging when others are zagging type of thing you know exactly yeah i mean he saw himself like really did you know he was like a self-described bad boy and there's nothing worse (laughs) in life than a self-described bad boy and probably nothing even worse than a self-described bad boy screenwriter i mean like that is the lowest of the low for sure i totally agree with you marsh though with like the ice skating scene with gina davis and the passion that rennie harlan brings to the way he shoots it because my experience sitting and watching the long kiss goodnight was consistently like i would see something that i would definitely classify as a rennie harlan flourish him having a lot of fun being a total bozo and i'd be like oh this is kind of fun and then it would be like 15 minutes of me like i couldn't get over the fact i'm like this movie is just like so stupid like it is just like such a and i like enjoyed watching the movie but it's been a long time since i've like watched a film where i could not shake the the stupidity of it you know like it was something that like i couldn't like get out of my system or ignore while watching it so rosenbaum was right to like deploy that word it's like an easy thing to just call an action movie but this one has like a distinctly stupid dumb guy quality to it well yeah but it's also frustratingly built into the conception of the movie because like the way people the things people say in this movie are you know self-aware right and i think like we we forget in this day and age that before you know quentin tarantino shane black was was the one really who like verbalized uh, or brought a new sort of like verbal language to these action movies to these crime movies which is very like quippy and very Mm -hmm. meta and, and whatever because then it allows him to go like isn't this stupid 
You yeah. know, like again, it's it's this like I mean, bait and switch. I mean, you know? really, yeah. He he was like an instrumental figure in basically like launching the the like late eighties, nineties, you know, action uh, extravaganza fest. I mean, like, but but also specifically from the way he wrote. And, and his screenplays, like the actual writing right. of the screenplay itself was incredibly self-aware. And not even just what we see on the screen, but but stuff that was written. Yeah, like addressed to producers. Yeah, and just shit on like the page. That. I mean, I remember. You know, bad boy Todd Field did that in the Tar screenplay. There's like a little intro, like this this screenplay is this is X amount of minutes, but the film will be longer. Uh, you know, like <laughs> shit like that, dude. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, it's, it's like. Munching on big league chew while he was drafting that. Oh god, dude. Yeah. I mean it is. Like it's 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 grimy on a certain level, but it's like, yeah, you know, props are are due in the sense that, yeah, Shane Black was this guy who suddenly was was changing the way action movies sounded in in Hollywood. And and yeah, like the plots are are kind of meaningless. And I think that's like where it was kind of like well, who cares what the goddamn thing's about? Let's give him the explosions. Let's give him the action, right? I mean, like, let's give him the music. Let's give him the beats. Oh, my and, like, God, if you, the music. As long as you don't think too hard, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, if we can get into that. Uh, it's just, like, one of those things where it's just, like, it's just so suffocating where it's, like, any time a pop song is deployed, it's, like, this movie's, like, you are not allowed to feel anything different than what I'm telling you to feel right now. You know yeah. this song. Like, bob your head. Look at your husband sitting next to you in the theater you love music i mean there are some horrible scenes where there will be like two music drops two different songs getting dropped for two different like character entrances uh you know in in like the span of three minutes i mean yeah it is it is relentless but i think again like these movies were designed this way. They had to be relentless. You know, and again, talking about that pacing and that feeling of it, at two hours, it's like, with these movies, if you suddenly pump the brakes, if you stop for a second, if you are not being stimulated in one way, shape, or form, you go, wait, none of this makes any fucking sense. I mean, even the amnesia thing that we begin with makes no goddamn sense. But yeah, to say nothing of the CIA shit. And 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 again, I think like that's that's either what you find very pleasant about something like this or at least, you know, enjoyable for the 2 hours you spend or you find it completely oppressive and grating. Um again, you know, this is like a my wife movie. So it's like uh, the plan was to like make her this action star, but my god, the way he lingers on her body uh, throughout this film, the way he looks for any opportunity to be like, isn't my goddamn wife a hottie? You know, I mean, in the very beginning, she has this moment of just being like, sometimes I just look at myself naked in front of the mirror within like the first five minutes of the movie. (laughs) 
we are looking at Gina Davis in profile, fully nude. Uh, there are moments where suddenly her character is being stripped down by the bad guys, seemingly for no other reason than to be like, it's pretty cold in here, and she's just wearing a little tank top now. There's just a lot of very gratuitous depictions of her physique, of her form. And, and in the meantime, there's like lines in the script where people call her frumpy yeah. and shit. <laughs> Like, like, yeah. and again, I don't know how much of that is just like the built-in chain black misogyny that didn't get like changed when the movie got made, or it's all a joke because it's Gina Davis and she looks great. Yeah. You know, like I couldn't, I, I like, I couldn't read that because I do think there is an element in the film where a lot of the men in the film are predatory towards mm -hmm. her, right? Especially in the beginning, even in her idyllic life, this old man gropes her in her car and oh, she yeah. cries and then he gets killed. The boys at the parade are catcalling yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. So like... Uh, it's not just you know the the CIA assassins that are out to out to get her. It's also right. There's a lot of predatory men around her, and and including of course, her husband. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and like because she's also like she's she is fucking tortured in this movie like multiple oh, yeah. times. I mean, this is a man like shooting his wife and, and, and showing us how hot she is. And then like punching her in the face over and over again, which again, in my weird, you know, trying to psychoanalyze this whole thing while he's also banging her personal assistant on the side. It's, it is very strange to me. It's it's almost like Peckinpah-esque at times. You know, it occurs to me now that this is one of those films, like a lot of 90s films, but this one always stood out to me as kind of the ultimate, like, guys can't hit anything while they're shooting, like, a million bullets movies. You know, I remember being, like, 12, 13 and being like, this doesn't seem very realistic, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. no one can hit anything. Except you know? for her. Except for her. But there's got to be, yeah, like an army's worth of ammo spent yeah. uh, in the direction of Gina Davis. And then it's like, yeah, they they, they always escape somehow. Oh, my God. Know? Look, I mean, again, if you're, if you're talking about, like, the dumb things in this movie, it's like... The, the premise is essentially at a certain point that, that when her identity is discovered, because I guess the turning point is that as she's, you know, playing Mrs. Claus in this parade, it gets on the evening news and some guy. Everyone in, in the tri-state area saw it. Yeah, apparently. everyone is watching the, the Scranton affiliate or whatever uh, that evening. And, and it begins then this, this, this return of all these spooks, of all these CIA guys, these black bag assassins who are trying to kill her. And at a certain point, they plan this ambush for her. They know that she is going to meet her previous handler at this train station. And so the head of this, like, this team of elite CIA assassins is like, we're going to hit her right there. She'll never see it coming. And they devise the sloppiest, most <laughs> pathetic, most embarrassing, and and like noisiest hit you could ever imagine, you know, that would have gone down in American history as one of the, the, the worst crimes ever, you know, that, that probably would have had yeah. like all of our law enforcement, re, re, you know, resources like deployed to figure it out. Because like you said, these assassins roll in 
And he's like, yeah, take them out. And they just start spraying automatic gunfire in this train station and probably kill like 20 or 30 just bystanders, just civilians. And and yeah, so like you said, they they sure can't hit her, but they are they are racking up a lot of collateral damage along the way. And no one uh, really seems to be that perturbed by any of it. No, no. You know, when I think about making a movie with your wife and trying to make your wife look really sexy. I definitely prefer Blomberg's approach where instead of uh, having his wife just like nude, because it would obviously be like way too cold uh, for, for the white reindeer. I did like that. Maybe one way you could read it, his way of evoking it is that the white reindeer itself is so stunning and captivating to look at in the film that when she does transform into it, he's maybe in like a poetic way communicating also the fact that he sees his wife as a person that's so desirable as much as like as beautiful as this creature of the reindeer itself, you know, like her beauty is symbolized through the grace of this reindeer, like moving through the snow. Cause I was just totally hypnotized anytime we saw this white reindeer on screen, this film is so bright during the day because the snow is so reflective and to every human being just acts as like a bit of contrast across the frame, you know, or any tree that is still primarily snow covered. You see a little bit of the, you know, the bark on on the stump of it, but it's like, then there's that reindeer that is still just as bright as the landscape, but it's just, it's ghostly, it's beautiful. And I like the idea that he thinks his wife is, as gorgeous and stunning as as that reindeer itself. I think it's a nicer way of doing it than just having Gina Davis take a shower. You know? Sure, and dye her hair blonde. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Ooh la la. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting, again, like comparison between the two because you're, you're you know, both are dealing with like external and internal uh, changes, transformations, doubles, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is incredibly poetic in the white reindeer and it is you know even in spite of the fact that yes like there is this this physical change of her into a a white reindeer or i i also almost wonder is it simply is she actually turning into the white reindeer or are the men only seeing her as the white reindeer right like this creature um now whether that's you know yeah, because I feel like the women see the white reindeer as well then, so... Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because there's, like, the granny I love, like, there's just, like, one shot at a certain point when everyone starts to go after her. There's just, like, a shot of just, like, this 80-year-old woman who just, like, whips out a knife <laughs> yeah. and just, like... <laughs> Like Samuel L. Jackson in Long Kiss yes. Goodnight just nails her with, a like, a, a throwing knife from, that's like, true, far that away. granny. Yeah, really awesome. Yeah. Just stone face too. Just no panic in her. Just like yeah, I got no this hesitation. Shit. <laughs> yeah, you know? the Finns don't fuck around. Ask yeah. the Soviets. Yeah, she must have been a, a spy during the war or something because uh, <laughs> she pulled that out. And and I, at first I thought she missed her, and then it cuts to you know Perita, and she's like nursing the wound oh. from the throwing knife. I had no doubt she hit her. <laughs> the, the, look, the look on that old lady's face when she pulled that knife out, there was. 
Yeah, there was no doubt in my mind she hit what she was aiming at. Yeah, that that old lady could have taken on the entire army of um like goons and dudes that are in the Long Kiss Goodnight from what has to be maybe the most bland villain I've like ever seen in a film. <laughs> this guy just named Timothy, the most like forgettable villain of all time. Just Craig like Beerco. I wanted to yeah, I just wanted to like fast forward through every single scene that guy was in. Just like yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, Brian Cox was gone too soon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, smug, handsome guy was gone way too late, you know? <laughs> yeah, the, the Brian Cox, like the brief Brian Cox like moment in this film. He was is, cracking me up, man. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's he's just, he's fucking perfect in everything he does. I wanted so much more of Brian Cox. Cox as this weird, frumpy old professor slash handler, handler, assassin, trainer. Like, <laughs> my God. Look, if you want me to talk in front of him, you may be asked to kill him later. What? It works for me, your call. What? Fire at the back if you have to. <laughs> Jesus, old man, how many of those things you got? Three, one shoulder, one hip, and one right here next to Mr. Wally. Well, most pat-downs never reveal it, as an agent's often reluctant to feel up another man's groin. Any other questions? Yeah. And there's, like, this amazing scene. I I think, like, Samuel Jackson's wardrobe throughout the film. They are, like, without a doubt, I think, like, some of my favorite movie fashion in any movie you will ever fucking see. Like the fuzzy hat? The fuzzy kangles, dude? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He wears, like, multiple fuzzy kangles. But what's awesome about... You know, like we talked about this like train sequence, you know, where there's like an ambush, train station ambush and stuff like that. And like to get out of it, there's this really like breathtaking action set piece where they leap out of a building and into water. So they're soaked and they need new clothes. And when Brian Cox, you know, rescues them, get in that typical Hollywood thing, like no time to explain, get in, you know, and they get in and they drive away. He, they have to change their wardrobe. They have to put on dry clothes. And so like, there's the implication that of course they're, you know, just, taking whatever's in Brian Cox's trunk at the time. So I think what also makes it super funny to me is that when Samuel Jackson is now dressed like a pimp in like a bright green, like gumby ass blazer, a fuzzy kangle, like a yellow turtleneck, plaid pants, and like these maroon Gucci loafers, like that's not Samuel Jackson's, that's not Mitch Hennessy's clothing, that's Brian, that's how Brian Cox's character yeah. dresses in the it's movie. It's like perfectly fit and tailored. It is insane how well it fits him that it just came out of his <laughs> trunk. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we've been in uh, we've been in this territory before in another movie about assassins. You know, I was thinking during the Long Kiss Goodnight, like here we are again in like the romantic comedy, like the screwball comedy within the action film, like we uh, had with Assassination with Charles Bronson and Jill Ireland, where yeah, they're just like driving around and bantering, doing like the battle of the sexes. Yeah. And, you know, we get that tension. Uh, throughout this movie a lot of it is just yeah you're like road tripping with Samuel Jackson easy sport got myself out of Beirut once I think I can get out of New Jersey yeah well don't be so sure others have tried and failed the entire population in fact you know and obviously like he he's committed to any movie he's in and and he's committed in this movie in a very serious way uh, to give that you know uh, counterpoint to Gina Davis, but like, man, 
uh, I want that fuzzy Kangol hat. I can't stop thinking about <laughs> oh, it. Dude, you know? it is, it's incredible. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, like, that is just one big thing about the movie. Like, without Samuel L. Jackson, this movie is 20 DOA. times. Yeah, it is just, it's a total piece of garbage. Well, I do want to go back a little bit to the fact that both of these films have interesting transformations of the protagonists and oh, the way yeah. that that is sort of showcased, like how they slip into something that's bare within them so of course in the long kiss goodnight there's all sorts of gags about you know gina davis is really good with a knife you know and she thinks i'm a chef but then she's doing all sorts of crazy you know precision knife throwing and all sorts of the recurring gag is like like oh chefs do that you know chefs chefs do these sorts of things but i did like when in the white reindeer when perita does go to this shaman saku nila who like lives in this hut like way on the outskirts of town right like he's sort of it almost feels like he's outside of the community a little bit he's someone that people go to and clearly when they visit him they like provide him with some sort of offering and she had these what looked like finnish bagels uh which i definitely wanted to try Mm. there was like some interesting looking food um in that sequence but when she meets with him he does after a ceremony tell her that you know in order to like unlock her potential in order for men to desire her and want to be around her, she needs to kill the first thing she sees, the first living thing she sees when she leaves him. And that, of course, ends up being a like young white reindeer calf that uh, she's been carting around for the first chunk of the movie. That her husband got her as a gift. Yeah. Correct, correct. And I got to say, I felt like, you know, she had a brief moment of hesitation, but it did sort of feel like, you know, the inner witch within her. She she didn't hesitate that much to, to kill that reindeer. She really, really wanted uh, this plan to go together. At first, I thought she saw a person. And I was yeah. like, oh, shit, she's going to kill another person it's her in husband. the town? Her, 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 like, husband and the white reindeer are, like, both. The, yeah, they're both in the image. So, again, you know, you can read that then as her, like, then selecting, you know. Like, she had a choice. Yeah, you know, the, first the, whole, thing. the whole reason I went to the shop is to keep him around. I can't, <laughs> I can't true. off him. It's funny, though, because I wonder what she thought was going to happen when you think about it. I get, like, this is sort of, like, fairy tale logic, but if I lived somewhere so desolate and I was told that to get what I wanted I had to kill the first living thing I saw and I knew that there wasn't a ton of wildlife around because again it's a very barren landscape and it's also relatively flat so everything's like you know kind of within just you could see it at, at a great distance going home wouldn't be the first place i'd go <laughs> pretty reckless I, choice pretty reckless I, choice i'd shop around a little bit for some other living creatures that i could do, sacrifice i mean to be fair to be fair she was kind of in a daze the scene of the shamans gets a little intense yeah. you know it's true, it does. Uh, because she's bewitched and then the shaman's like afraid of her and the drum beat and the music is going all crazy uh and you know i the the little bit i could find in the research uh, on this film did mention that the score by Einar England was like a, a landmark score in the history of Finnish cinema. It was like you know, a new kind of, of composing and it is like a very like modern uh, score you know, it's, it's like wild. but obviously like, you know, playing with these folk traditions, but yeah it is a really impressive 
piece of music and it, re it just really works with the film's silent film quality you know especially the drum beats and the shaman and like the reindeer shrine sequence which i think you were sort of like building up to ryan in terms of these transformations right because she kills her pet uh, at the, the the insanely black metal reindeer shrine. Yeah, <laughs> the altar to the stone god, dude, yeah. Every single shot in that sequence looked like an album cover. It was so sick, particularly like when she's framed under those antlers that are stuck in the snow. And then just with that, that music is so awesome. Like I mentioned, I just wanted to throw, you know, if I was given a CD of the Long Kiss Goodnight album, I'd just toss it in the garbage. Get, give me the, you know, give me a record of this. I, I want the score from the White Reindeer. It was so yeah. sick. Yeah, comparing that to the the saxophone the saxophone fun uh, dinner sequence where they're cooking together as a family and doing the classic Hollywood let's start throwing all the ingredients around uh. the kitchen because we're having such a goofy time and there's just the most grating like saxophone like oh, breakdown man. in that moment it's, <laughs> yeah yeah Brutal. it is totally obnoxious but yeah totally. that shrine scene is awesome I mean that's when the film you know like you know starts to like enter into its, its wild genre territory I mean, that initial scene with the shaman is really cool with that drum that has, um, like, those small paintings on the skin of the drum. And what, could you tell what that was? There was, like, some, that little piece that was bouncing on top of the drum itself. Yeah, like a bone or a stone of some kind, really. Just, mm -hmm. you know, the kinds of crazy shit that shamans would, exactly. would you know, yeah, It have. sort of seemed like he was treating it like a Ouija board of sorts because wherever that bone was landing was telling this narrative that he was too afraid to continue telling because he could tell that she was a witch. Yeah, a, a, a talisman of some sort, yeah, really. Yeah. All I know is that when she was freaking out at the, the stone god shrine, I just wrote, this is like a Kenneth Anger movie. Uh, and it really felt like that, this sort of like ritual, mystical <laughs> fucking like crazy sequence. There's like negative images deployed, dissolves all these like visions. Yeah. Uh, and similarly to The Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, as, uh, you know, Sam is, is coming out of her amnesia, she similarly has these like crazy uh, sort of dream sequences where she's wrestling with her identity between these, uh, you know, her, her two selves yeah. or whatever. Unlike, <laughs> unlike the edge of a cliff on like a very stormy night. That was nuts. And a, and a blonde, a, a blonde Gina Davis with slicked back hair and, and lots of makeup is saying, like, I'm coming, I'll be back. Like, and, and then takes a pull from a cigarette, you know? I think I read someone online just like casually refer to that scene as something out of Hellraiser, like specifically <laughs> Hellraiser 2. And it oh, really yeah. does feel like that. It is like such a stylistic departure from the rest of the movie. Yeah, I mean, and like, again, if you're, if you're sort of like watching both of these movies together, I mean, like, you know it right away that that is at the core of, of what's, what's to come then in, in both of these characters' journeys, which is the, the idea of, you know, be careful what you wish for, right? That thing that you desire the most 
could be the most destructive thing for you and and everyone around you, you know? Like, I knew it. The minute she went and saw the shaman in the white reindeer, I was like, this is not going to go down how you think it is. And he even, like, words it in that classic kind of uh, manner of, like, okay, all the men will desire you. I mean, he puts it in this very kind of, like, vague way to, like, your wish is granted. You will be sought after by every herdsman around. And it's like, here it comes. Yes, immediately. And not in the way she expected it, of course. And the same thing with Samantha. Like, I need to know who I am. I have to dig up my past. Like, this nice fucking white-ass middle-class life wasn't good enough for her. And I guess the same thing for uh, for our character in The White Reindeer is, right? You know, it's like you got a loving husband. You got all this good stuff going on. And it's just still not quite enough. And so both of them dig and dig and get certainly what they asked for, but but not um, not at all in the way that they expected it. Yeah, neither of them want to be in the PTA anymore. <laughs> no, no. And I was just going to say, you know, about the shaman, Andy, what did, what did she think was going to happen when he put the balls of 10 moose in the stew? Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, come <laughs> on, dude. Oh, yeah. It's a, po- it's a potent stew. Yeah. The balls of 10 bull mooses and dirt from a graveyard, you know? That is not... <laughs> that is not the kind of potion I think that's, that's gonna... some Elden Ring shit. You oh, know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me the graveyard soil. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit! You know, I think it, it it calls to mind. I think the White Reindeer in general for a lot of people, uh, the Black Cat and Jacques Tourneur. You know, in terms mm-hmm. of like the as you were talking about ryan the sort of element of desire uh but i think yeah the use of shadows and the use of implication here right the clashing of the the natural and the supernatural as you put it andy definitely calls to mind tornair but i was also thinking about uh Tropical Malady, the Apichapong film, where the second half of the film is this mythical, like, sexual uh, hunt between a tiger and a man. And, right. and I was thinking, like, again, about how, you know, in that, Apichapong's drawing on, of course, folklore, uh, Buddhist folklore as well. Uh, and that is really, like, how the second half of The White Reindeer is, like, a series of these these hunts and these seductions. And of course the white reindeer keeps luring all these men into what is referred to by the locals as evil Valley. <laughs> evil Valley. Yeah. It's just it's like, I can't, you know, it's like fool me once, you know, shame on you, but fool me twice. The, the, the guy following the reindeer back into evil Valley. It's like, come on, man, think it through, put two and two together. Yeah, especially the guy with the rifle. I love that. At a certain point, you know, all the villagers, like the dudes are sitting around a fire being like arguing over which weapon can kill a bewitched white reindeer. You know, they all have different theories. Like, I'll use my rifle. They're like, that's not going to work. You got to use a spear. Uh, And they have, (laughs) and specifically, cold iron. Cold iron, yeah. Cold iron spear, as we will certainly learn later. Oh, yeah. uh, As many spears and spearheads are fashioned. And you know what? That is, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 
that has a, a lot of different cultures share that in terms of witchcraft. Like uh, one of the, the the keys I know even in like you know uh, the Americas much later in like the 1600s was like if you had a witch you had to make sure she was in iron cuffs specifically like iron is is shared I think Mm. by a lot of different and there's obviously similarities in in different European and and like you know eventually American traditions a lot of crossover but but iron is uh, in a lot of folklore instrumental to dealing with witches. But the, the the thing with the guy and the rifle is, and again, this gets us into the strange regional politics here, we discover that he's a Southerner yeah. as he is derided by the other, you know, the locals, right? You know, don't screw with me. You have no idea how local I am, right, Ryan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they say to him, basically. Yeah, that's true, uh, they do. You finally learned the meaning. Yeah, because the Southerner is the guy that's like, and, and, and he's also Dressed differently, you know, he is a little bit more cosmopolitan. They're all wearing much more like traditional dress, and he's got like a, a little hunting cap on and like a, a blazer and stuff like that. And yes, the modern bolt action rifle, and he decides like I'm just going to deal with this on my own. But I do want to point out, you know, for the Finns, you know, there is a grand tradition of marksmanship with that particular rifle that he had, the the Finnish Mosin Nagant, little gun nerd in uh, gun. Gun nerd fact for you here. Ryan's got the book corner. Andy's got, you know, Uncle Andy's armory. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, it was invoking for me, like, throughout this whole movie, like, the great traditions of, like, Finnish hunting. And the Finns take a lot of pride in their hunting. And the deadliest military sniper in the history of modern warfare was a Finnish man by the name of Simo Heija. And uh, this guy is is a legend. During the, the Finnish Winter War, when the Soviets invaded, this guy was a local sort of like warden or hunter who specialized in like taking out wolves who were going after herds and stuff like that. And he used that same weapon, that bolt action Finnish Mosin Nagant, which he then used in the winter war against the Soviets. Instead of hunting wolves, he turned his sights on the invading Red Army. And this guy, in like five or six months, by himself, using this bolt-action rifle with no scope, iron sights, killed 500, it's estimated, killed 500 Red Army soldiers alone. Like, the most deadly uh, marksman in the history of combat. But But do you think that he could have taken down the white reindeer. Oh, I was thinking that the whole time in this movie. I was thinking <laughs> that the whole time, you know? And I got to say, I think the white reindeer might have been the only thing to best Simo Heha. Or perhaps Gina Davis, who's also quite the sniper herself. Oh, yeah. In The Long Kiss Goodnight. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder who would win in a battle between uh, Perita, the White Reindeer, and Gina Davis uh, from The Long Kiss Goodnight. It's hard to say. And, I, you know, it, 
it reminds me of something I wanted to like bring up, you know, that argument that they have about the cold steel and Andy, you mentioning in certain elements like of Christianity, this idea of cold steel would be something that was used for witches. There is like an interesting element of this film, like with someone who's from the South, this implication of Christianity sort of eroding the culture that they have there because mm-hmm. there was obviously historically like a forced Uh, conversion for the Sami people to become Christians. And at one point, she does attend a wedding that's being ministered by someone, a Protestant minister. He's got the clerical, you know, robes on. Another crazy sequence, by the way, that that church scene. Where she's like bewitching the husband. Yeah. Yeah, That's awesome. But it's like a wild undercurrent throughout the film where... You know, of course, she's killing these men and villainous, but there's also something about the folklore and the myths persevering and the fact that there's, you know, Christianity kind of taking over their community. And again, that's why I think about the the shaman that's like feels like he's on the outskirts of town. And later in the film, we see that his home is completely covered in snow. It's frozen over and he's dead by the end of it. Like his power is eroding away in this environment. But yeah, that, that, that wedding scene is wild too. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I think again, like, you know, aside from the fact that she is sort of like bewitching, uh, whether intentionally or not the, the groom who can't help at certain points and start just looking over his shoulder at this, this very spooky lady and like the third moment. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, um, but, but there's also like on her face. I mean, she is like, she's very uncomfortable in, Mm-hmm. setting like in that church like she is like sweating bullets in there and and i think it it again like speaks to that like within her of being like you know th- i don't belong in this place i don't belong in these rituals certainly not after what i just did and and what i have unleashed on on this community but but it is like a film that i think like in its folklore is also trying to suggest that the sort of like the the passing of a certain time the passing of a certain of a certain era especially when we like get towards the film's like conclusion that it's it's the kind of folklore told at that point in sort of you know a quotation marks right modern history of saying like you know uh these 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 things don't happen anymore these stories this yeah. way of life is is gone because of southerners because of christianity because of the big cities because of whatever right there's like a sadness that pervades a lot of the film just to me in that kind of like apocalyptic sense of one one way of life sort of drifting away. And I, again, I think that that is tied into so many of those shots of like the landscape that, that aside from the community of the people, there's, there's just so much desolation. And even that black metal altar that we described, you know, it's basically, it looks like it's, it's incredibly dilapidated as well. Like that there are signs it may have been used quite a bit, but like the shaman's home, no one really visits it anymore. No one is is sacrificing to the stone god nearly as much as they may have in the past. 
Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, changing ways are also a big part of the long kiss goodnight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because when Charlie Baltimore, CIA assassin, uh, learns you know who she is after an eight-year absence on the job, the Cold War is no longer going on. And old enemies have become new friends and old friends have become new enemies and ultimately what is at the you know the the core of this like zany cia plot uh is essentially yeah the the waning power of the deep state the intelligence services uh means they're going to stage a false flag and blame it on muslims well and specifically, <laughs> another false another, flag. Another, yes. Because in this, the, the, they also imply, I, I guess directly or indirectly, however much you want to read into it, that they were responsible for the first World Trade Center bombing in, what was that, 93? Yes. Yeah. Because, again... Which is the true. The war's yeah, over. Right. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and again, why... See, for me, like, these, these sort of, like, goofy ass dumbass movies you you both know this and i'm sure we've even talked about it on the pod before but like i have this um this soft spot and this fascination with this period of like hollywood's you know action uh history whatever this this end of history period of like the mid 90s because in the absence of of those old enemies you're saying it, in the end of the cold war you get this really interesting shift for for hollywood this problem of hollywood of like well who do we make the bad guys and and prior to 911 <laughs> it was much more focused on the, the the government, the CIA, the military industrial complex, and it, it begins in this decade to transition towards Muslim Islamic extremism and things like true lies and that sort of thing, although true lies might have been before this. But still, like you have those kind of two poles during this era of being like, well, who are the bad guys? And I just love that in so many of these movies, like the government are explicitly the bad guys or the government's instincts, the government's drive for more of that, more of what they used to have. And that's what I also really appreciate about this movie is the CIA are the fucking bad guys, like 100%. And that, yes, they are ultimately planning a horrific uh, attack. I mean, not just a, a sort of like... a small town Christmas parade. Yeah. With a chemical truck. And they're, they're even throwing out a number. Like, they want like 4,000 dead yeah. in this chemical bomb that they're going to set off. I mean, it's... And I mean, yeah, like... You can make fun of this movie all you want, but like at the end of the day, how prescient uh, is that too? Especially with like the connection to the original World Trade Center bombing, where they were in contact with intelligence assets, and that's something that has uh, been quite clear, I think, to a lot of us for the last fifteen, twenty years, is how many mass shootings there have been when the feds knew the feds were there the feds were surveilling whether it's the feds or cia or whoever uh that shit still going on all the time and you gotta go what's 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 up with that oh yeah yeah and again i think like what's kind of interesting or bold in in this film and again in that very end of history way is that like the thing that really sets them off 
isn't that there is some big threat. It's just that the CIA is losing its funding. And in this movie, the president informs the head of the CIA or the deputy director, whoever Perkins is, that their funding is shifting towards health care, you know, towards <laughs> yeah, yeah in Hillary, what worlds, Hillary and yeah. Bill's big plan for, <laughs> you know, for health care in the mid 90s. Well, so here was my question then, too, because so Perkins is obviously pissed off about the budget cuts, and that's why he's moving forward with this plan and he's getting back at them. Operation Honeymoon, as exactly. it's known. And that like in enacting this plan, there's going to be then a flood of money back towards the CIA so he can like have his funding to do his special project. But what does like Timothy want out of it? Is it just like a job? Because he does seem like he's really passionate about Operation Honeymoon. But at the same time, <laughs> it seems like he's just a contract worker that's like, well, this is the the pay is, is good. But then he's also a dude that's just like willing to kill his own daughter uh, and not even really blink an eye about it. And he's just, is it because he hates Gina Davis so much? Because I mean, they did history. used to date. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very shallow. I mean, I think yeah. the Timothy character is a is an ill conceived nothing, as far as I'm concerned. You yeah. know, yeah. he's okay. just there to smile and shoot a gun, and you know, he's just an unpleasant presence to me. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and that's it. I mean, he's he is chosen as a type, and that's it. You know, like you're not supposed to to think too deeply about it and and yeah that's that's certainly one of its like its big failures is that it isn't very compelling in that sense what's most compelling about this movie as marsh described are all those like it happened one night moments of yeah. of samuel l jackson shirtless in a hotel room cracking jokes Smoking and watching Newports. yeah and watching the long goodbye on the tv a little on right. the nose shane black get fucked you know but <laughs> private dicks yeah 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 but but yeah i mean I mean, it's it is just gobbledygook. All of that stuff is 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 pointless. It's not meant to 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 actually be be tied to anything. And again, compared to like so many action movies you've seen that come out that have come out post 9-11 where, you know, the CIA are are, you know, even if they might have to go a little dark, they are they're there for our benefit. You know, they're all Batman. They're they're doing things in the shadows for our benefit. And this movie clearly is stating that like the only thing that happens in the shadows is bad. You know, what, what these guys are doing is bad and, and there should be oversight. And the point is that they have no oversight. They want no oversight. So, so basically what do they want? I guess on a certain level, if you have to give it up to this, you know, what does Craig Bierko want? What does Timothy want? He just wants to be able to be Mr. Bad Boy forever, you know, like Shane Black. You know, he's a self-described bad boy, scum of the earth. He needs to be wiped out. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, the yeah, the relationship between Mitch and, and Charlie as the film develops is compelling and does represent a, an alternative direction that the film could could have gone, perhaps. Uh, you know, she does come on to him at a certain point, but it's really more like she's overcompensating for her split personality or whatever. But you know, I think that's the thing that also, like, ultimately frustrated me is going back to this movie is like, yeah, oh, you're edgy? How about?
about, you know, don't end your movie where she goes back to Hal to live in the suburbs as a teacher. Like, it, it's so conservative. And you just go like, oh, cool, Mr. Edgy Man, that's the ending you envision. Like, it would be edgy if she just, like, took off with Samuel Jackson and, and got married to the to the private detective who's, like, an ex-con who has no money. Yeah. Like, that would be an actual radical act compared to uh, the conclusion of this movie. Yeah, and again, it's like it is a it is a, a a a hallmark for Shane Black, and and I think beginning in the late '80s and into the '90s, like the Hollywood obsession with uh, broken marriages, broken homes, and and how basically. Yeah, you need a whole lot of <laughs> violence or drama or whatever Hollywood bullshit to to bring these families back together. Seeing the state of America in the in the '90s, it's it's no good. And like the bulk of the movie then becomes this journey for her back to motherhood, back to to yeah to her square ass fucking husband or you know fiance mm-hmm. or, or whatever and even for Samuel L. Jackson's character you know he's given the trope of being the the deadbeat dad with the heart of gold he's divorced his his wife doesn't want him to to hang out with his son and so he's trying to prove something lethal weapon same shit you know like last action hero broken home another Shane Black written film like and in his own twisted way then always uses like ultra violence as as the thing which in like a Fordian way like help us rediscover community rediscover our place and that's why you're you're right it's it's not bold it is inherently like reactionary at its core yeah because like the white reindeer kind of struck me in a similar manner in the sense that it is like very much as a folk tale right what is on the surface going on right it's like well this woman you know she should have just been happy with what she had right she should have just accepted it that's on the surface, Ryan, you know, uh, and, and I'm saying like what the film does is, is significantly more complex than that. But ultimately, uh, it is the story of like, yeah, a woman transgressing societal norms. So she has to be ultimately in the end punished. And, and boy, she she is, you know, ultimately. But but the fact that, as you pointed out, the evil being sort of inherent and within her makes it. A tragedy because the film identifies with her and makes us identify with her like from the inside out. And again, I, I can't help but for myself, you know, when I was watching the movie, like I kept drifting going like she, it, I, I sometimes didn't think she was actually turned into that white reindeer. But but suddenly like everyone in the community like was seeing her as this thing that needed to be wiped out, that needed to be dealt with, you know, and, and it just starts spreading like wildfire. Because at first it's only like, a, you know, a solo hunter here, a, a, a wayward man there. But by the end, it's like everybody's got their, you know, there's this great sequence where like everybody's like, that's it. We all have to deal with this. And you get that, that sequence where like all the people in this community are now working on their spears, getting their cold iron out, going like, this is, there's only one way to handle this. We all have to wipe this thing out. 
one of the things I found so interesting, especially when comparing it to the rather conservative ending of The Long Kiss Goodnight, where she does like rejoin her family because that's like her happy space and this is where she belongs and that sort of thing. The sexual politics of the white reindeer are really complicated and I found super interesting when thinking about this idea of her you know, pitching to the shaman, I want to be desired. And the way that that desire materializes is all these men who are trying to hunt her down, penetrate her with this cold iron, you know, like they're men on the prowl, they're hunting, they're hunting her down. She is like the big game uh, that they are setting their sights on. And that's how male desire materializes in this world. So it's like a lose-lose situation for her as the film sort of sets it up. But that's obviously, you know, not what she was inherently desiring the situation, you know, the outcome to be. So her witchcraft ended up having to be used to kill these men in self-defense that were coming after her. But I thought that that was like more radical than I was expecting from a film from 1952. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess that's like, you know, having your wife as a co-writer of the film. <laughs> You'd have to think. <laughs> I'm sure that's helpful. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the same kind of thing with, at least on that level, I think there's, there's a very similar vibe in in the long kiss goodnight because you know yeah so many of the men you know yes they they certainly want to hurt her they they want to kill her but they also want to caress her they want to touch her there's even this this part of her assassination there's like this element of you know in their you know again, CIA gibberish of how they communicate in code where they would refer to whoever she was going after as a man that she was engaged to. Right. So there's this like idea of marriage and sex and passion and, and again, penetration for, for I think a lot of the people who are coming after her as well. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not made of stone. It's still fucking awesome watching Gina Davis just, like, lighting dudes up. They're, like, oh, yeah. especially when she does kill Timothy. Like, that it that sequence is awesome. Oh, when she, yeah. like, slices the big string of lights and she, like, shoots up into she the sky. She goes up like Jackie Chan, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that felt like something straight out of a Hong Kong movie. And seeing her... <laughs> All that experience on the rigging and the sails. Yeah. You know? That's right. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those movies where the whole time you resent the presence of Timothy so much and you just like want to see him have such a grisly end. So to see Gina Davis screaming at the top of her lungs and shoot that guy out of a helicopter, it's super cathartic. And yeah. just in general, watching her just like kill a bunch of dudes is inherently extremely pleasurable. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, again, like... For 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 all the like the the little like stupid things about this movie, like you know, looking at it in, in, with a sort of like macro lens, it is this kind of like badass female protagonist who who uh, you know for Hollywood even still in the nineties was was kind of ahead of the game and gave it up to to people like James Cameron and Rennie Harlan for for pushing for this kind of thing and and for saying like you know women can be attractive and beautiful and they can also like kick ass and they weren't the first to do that in the history of movies certainly not but as far as like 
big It feels budget. like a prototype for today, you know, and I feel like yeah. you see a lot of movies that are worse than these movies still coming out, yeah. you know. And and give it up to at least Shane Black in this sense because he said he had a lot of pressure from the studio <laughs> To, to to make it a man, to make the central character a dude. And oh he was God. like, are you, are you fucking I stupid? I already wrote like, the last Boy Scout. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's like, yeah. no, it's gotta be a woman. He was like, it has to be a woman. And that's that's why like he, he knew he had to team up, especially with Rennie Harlan, because Rennie Harlan was 100% committed to, well, at the time anyway, committed to his <laughs> wife, Gina Davis, and not her personal assistant, but in presenting her as this action hero. And you haven't seen Cutthroat Island, but Gina Davis is really the the action hero in that film, the the pirate captain more mm. so than than Matthew Modine. And then this movie, the experience of of how it was received, and then Rennie Harlan's ultimate betrayal sent Gina Davis into like hiatus and her career never recovered from this. I mean, she took multiple years off. She said basically Hollywood stopped giving her offers. The next movie she was in in Hollywood was like playing the mom and Stuart little in 1999. <laughs> and she said that she was like, I turned 40 and fucking nobody in Hollywood would return my calls. And I was associated with two very like big disappointing films that my my you know husband was sure were going to be fucking massive hits and they weren't the the thing Ryan I mean I know you got to be on this but this movie seems like the template that was laid for like the entire almost the entire career of Paul W.S. Anderson and his wife Mila Jovovich like yeah. I think there's a very similar. I thought I was literally thinking about that earlier. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like she's basically Alice from the Resident Evil movies, yeah. like in this, you know. And Paul W. S. Anderson was just kind of starting his career in Hollywood at the time, and and I almost imagine that he was like, "That's the shit right there. We gotta yeah. do this. I gotta get me a babe." Like, man, did you see the Fifth Element? That chick was hot. You know. <laughs> see, the nice thing about the W. S. Anderson movies, though, is that it's just bozo moments, and you don't have to deal with all the other bullshit that's in the long kiss goodnight <laughs> man yeah. i wonder if rennie harlan's on cameo i would like pay just to hear him talk about the white reindeer because like i know he's seen it you know oh, it's yeah. like a bit of national oh, yeah. cinema there i'd be curious to hear what he thinks and he, oh, well, i think maybe... he lives in china now he makes like no chinese shit. he makes yeah. chinese films <laughs> he made like an epic for alibaba or whatever so he's not like rolling in any extra dough on cameo i'm not gonna find him there he's still gainfully employed in the in yeah. the spectacle industry <laughs> i do want to mention too on the flip side you know what what little i could find about the white reindeer you know i just found some like fin, you know sh small like Finnish cinema book or whatever uh -huh. uh, and and basically it said you know that the horror film uh, very rare in the history of Finnish cinema yeah. and so the White Reindeer was a real landmark moment however it had almost no influence on productions after it and it wasn't until the 1980s that the horror film got revived in Finland as slashers and so despite being this iconic film I mean, it was uh, a Finnish film that had international distribution. It was at the Cannes Film Festival. It right. won an award given out by Jean Cocteau. Um, and it showed in the United States and, and other places. And it really was this like nationally celebrated film. And then no one 
tried to imitate it, which is like a crawl, a crazy thing. Yeah. You know, it is. Yeah. yeah. So it still ends up being like an outlier in its national cinema. That is pretty interesting. I, I did also like, you know, Guy Madden compared it to or not Guy Madden. Jay Hoberman and his capsule of the White Ranger yes. compared it to to Guy Madden. It's got a Winnipegian vibe, yeah. Totally. It does, yeah. <laughs> just like so cold, and again, like some of the that night photography when things are just illuminated simply by the torches and the campfires. I mean, there's that amazing moment when one of the townsmen kind of realizes that Perita is the white reindeer and he pulls a log straight from the fire and starts chasing after her, holding it, a still lit log. And it's great because as he's running, the camera is picking up the light. So it's like lighting up the faces of other members of the town as he's just like carrying this baton to, to go after her. It's and and you know, very importantly, it's the southerner. It's that guy who right. didn't believe in the the more, you know, in his eyes, superstitious, like, you know, fears or concerns of the, the locals. And, and then he has that, you know, come to the stone god moment of uh, <laughs> like, oh, shit. No, they were right. Like, this is a fucking witch. This Because he yells that out, I think. Like, mm-hmm. it's a witch. It's the witch. Like, he has that realization in that in that great sequence yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and there's even there's even like gauzy kind of like smudgy lens stuff too that reminded me of guy madden in in that sense of these again like kind of like silent film era uh techniques that they're pulling out in these moments yeah i was thinking about that specifically when there's like the mass town blacksmithing scene as they're like putting together all of that cold iron into spears that they're going to use and then through the rest of the film then not feeling like a silent film in this moment the echoing of the the hammers you know hitting that cold iron as she's wandering around town knowing that the whole community is mobilized to to take her out dude (laughs) epic film sound moment and it brings it like it brings it full circle to her transition, her, her, her initial moment with the shaman, because in that there's the steady drum beat that, that, you know, is, is connecting her then to the spirit of the white reindeer. So it's like, it's echoed again at the end that, that, that pounding, but now instead of being, you know, stones on a drum or the shaman's hand, it is, yes, hammers on iron on anvils and it is a much harsher uh, a much higher pitched frequency mm-hmm. yeah and then it leads to that great shot of that old woman throwing that knife i just keep thinking about that i want a print of that to to hang up on the wall i would say though that it, you know despite the many sort of annoying parts of music we've we've you know sort of uh, lamented in the long kiss good night there is a little bit of musical flourish that has always stuck with me that I really, really get a kick out of. And that is uh, Samuel Jackson's uh, musical narration of pretty much everything he does with a blues beat, with a blues riff. I um, sing the things I do, you know, so uh, I won't forget. Like, uh, da 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 turn it off the downstairs light, da 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 da, before I go to bed at night. <laughs> there's just so that is 
To this day in my life, I will sometimes do that. My favorite one, though, <laughs> is a very throwaway moment. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but when they get to the train, you know, when they go to like that train station, he's like, I got to go to the bathroom or whatever. I'll be right back. And there's just a really quick throwaway moment where they cut to a shot just as he's walking in the men's room and he goes, got to go shake hands with the man. And I fucking, I've said that like still in my life like to this day you know yeah he's on another level in that movie as we said it's like dead on arrival if sam jackson's not in it and i generally really like that guy he's like always a welcome presence in the movie but i think this performance of his is a cut above some of his other comedic performances specifically it's just the way he like delivers so many of those one-liners were just like exceptionally funny I, oh. there was something like again so simple about it but i feel like i want to add it into the rotation of the shit that i say i love when man i can't even remember specifically what gina davis is asking for him but he just has that line in the car where he's like why don't you just hold on a minute while i pull that out of my ass <laughs> <laughs> yeah he he knows the part he's yeah. he's playing. He's you know, killing it. He said in an interview, uh, I, I I discovered that that this was uh, his favorite movie. I don't think that he said it, it wasn't the favorite movie he's been in, but he said it's his favorite movie of his to like watch of the movies he's been in. Like mm. he he himself, I guess loves watching the I can see him watching this yeah I mean it's it's a light movie you know it really is and I think he shines and, and Davis shines with him in in those scenes and like he's he's looking good he's feeling good you know this is like 90s Samuel Jackson this is oh, like yeah. the the fucking peak you know yeah it is a light movie but it does like end with a little girl beating what she thinks might be the corpse of her mother and screaming life is pain as she's like <laughs> slamming her mother's chest and demanding that she wake up yeah as rosenbaum says you know this film is a grotesque celebration of pain and i, oh, I definitely yeah. don't disagree with him yeah <laughs> i wouldn't dare well, you guys sure uh, let it snow uh, all over me uh, yeah. in this in this <laughs> episode, <showered. laughs> and I should point out, uh, fortuitously, uh, today was the time we're recording this. Uh, the first snowfall uh, of Chicago uh, happened this very day. Very nice. We've summoned it for you. Yeah, you really did. I went to the you know the stone god and I said it's time. Let's let's let that snow fall in the beautiful city of Chicago. Well, yeah. So I'm I'm glad you enjoyed trudging in the snow knee deep with us. Um, and uh, yeah, what when you think about other films that are blanketed with that uh, fresh powder, what are uh, what are some of the favorites that come to mind? I mean, when I assigned this topic, I really didn't think about it too hard, and I didn't think about it, like truly how many great films are, uh, you know, covered in snow, which is amazing because either artificially or real, it's a hard thing to do, um, and yet so many great films. And these are not my recommendations, but you can go down the line: Fargo, McCabe, Great Silence, The Ascent. I know Ryan's thinking The White Buffalo with Charles Bronson. Yeah. Thinking about the gold rush, right? All these great wintry, snowy movies. Um, but I want to, I want to highlight uh, a couple: uh, Sam Fuller's Fixed Bayonets. 
uh, his Korean War movie that oh, yeah. is just dudes trudging in the snow in a rear guard motion in the hell of the Korean War, and it is just bleak and cold and shivering and they're just like uh i don't know it's like one of those hollywood movies that's like so white looking yeah. that it almost becomes like abstract uh in a way in the black and white cinematography um and for a laugh i want to suggest uh snow job from 1969 which is uh a heist film in which the famous French skier Jean-Claude Keeley uh, plays a guy who, you know, does a heist and gets away on skis and basically a third of the movie is just watching this amazing skier ski uh vittorio de sica shows up i think at one point as like a fence or just like a generic hood you know uh he would often do that in these like international co-productions just like get that fat donald pleasance like one day paycheck or whatever but you know it's it's a bad movie but it's one that i'm like always thinking about because hey when's the last time you saw a skiing heist movie with a real skier in yeah. the lead role they, you know? yeah. they tried to like make that dude a star for a little while yeah. but they had to do that like all the movies <laughs> had to be like tied into his skiing ability because that's the only thing was he a gold medalist was that his thing something yeah, yeah definitely like internationally renowned and i mean he shreds and this is like a hell of a getaway so if you're looking mm. for something like that you know if that sounds up your alley uh snow job great title too yeah Right. Great title. I got to say, like I said to Ryan when we were, you know, going over our stuff that like the thing that I was bummed out the most, you know, recently is that, you know, we had spoiled our Klaus Kinski on <laughs> Time, <fucking> Stalkers. Time <laughs> Stalkers when I'm like probably my favorite snow Western of all time is yeah. the Great Silence. And it's just one of the coldest and most miserable snowy movies and probably like the finest performance of his entire career in Besides that one. Time Stalkers. Besides yeah. Time Stalkers. God damn it, dude. Time. And, uh, yeah. and I guess, you know, I'd be really remiss if I didn't mention, uh, you know, who could forget all of the great skiing sequences and more than half of the James Bond films. <laughs> oh my god. We should totally I think at least half of the Bond films have a snow sequence in Wait, them. Wait, doesn't On Her Majesty's Secret Service have a really good skiing oh, yeah. sequence? That one has oh, the yeah. exceptional one. Yeah, and then, I uh, love that shit. Because they're yeah. in the Alps, isn't that where like Blofeld's... You know, Peter yeah. Hunt's peak right mm -hmm. there. Marsh, I'm surprised you didn't mention... The Heroes of Telemark. Oh, I fucking love The Heroes of Telemark. Oh, my God. I totally blanked. Everybody watch Anthony Mann's The, Mann's the Heroes of Telemark. One of the great uh, skiing, shooting movies. Great sweaters. Uh, you know, Christopher Nolan ripped it off for Inception, if you like that. You know, that whole sequence is just a fucking rip of Heroes of Telemark. Check that shit out. Richard Harris in a wool sweater. Let's go. <laughs> well, it was uh, it was great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for letting it snow. And uh, next week, it is Andy's topic. What do you have for us this time? So in, you know, diving because of this week back into 
the career of of Rennie Harlan, like I I was reminded of the fact that the guy had in one way or another been involved in in a few like troubled productions that that you know at various points in his career. Obviously, we've talked about the the big bomb of of Cutthroat Island, which was a a troubled production. Uh, later, he was involved in the disastrous and and incredibly uh, cursed uh, attempt at making the 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 Exorcist prequel and the big kerfluffle between his version and Paul Schrader's versions. So I just started thinking about that a little bit more and and going, man, you know, we have at various points talked about you know, films and brought even some films to the pod where we have highlighted some elements of, of, you know, trouble on set. And I'm thinking, uh, we really need to just do a deep dive in that. So I want next week, you both to bring me, uh, uh, a very, very broken film. I want a troubled production, a cursed production, trouble on set. Bring me a movie that has a notoriously uh, sordid production history. That's what I want. Hopefully things won't get too messy. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. time I got blown, candy bars cost a nickel. What's going on? Chemistry, my ass. You know what I think? I think this is why you fuck me. To kill a school teacher. To bury her once and for all. I kind of like that school teacher. When she comes back, you give me a call, right? Oh, and call your fucking kid. It's two days to Christmas. She might be under the mistaken impression mommy gives a fuck.